Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Federal Circuit Podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director for BCLT, and we're here again to talk about some of the nuances from recent Federal Circuit decisions. We have today with us, again, one of the experts from Morrison and Forrester, Seth Lloyd, specializes in appellate litigation, including appellate litigation at the Federal Circuit. Seth, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Wayne. Really great to be here. So there were, were two cases that popped out in the last two weeks that they could be glossed over when you, when you look at some of the reporters that come out, but that really deserve a, a little bit of extra attention. The first is the canoe case, and you flagged that one because it really seems to, to tell us something about NDAs and this idea of pre-litigation discussions. So would you walk us through kind of how it got to the federal circuit? Yeah, sure. I think it's a little bit of a hot topic right now in the interplay between NDAs or, or arbitration agreements and the availability of review at the patent office, so IPRs and PTABs. So that's kind of this case really right in the center of all of that. I thought it was interesting because it actually drew amicus briefing during the initial appeal briefing. So sometimes at the federal circuit, it's not uncommon to see amicus briefing once there's a petition for rehearing, but but this one actually had amicus briefing on both sides of the issue at the kind of initial appeal stage. And the cases, just kind of the background facts are, you, you have Canoe, who's the plaintiff and patent owner. Um, they're an Australian startup company focused on media-related products, so kind of navigation of smart TVs. And several years ago, Samsung con contacted Canoe, expressing apparently some interest in, the, in that technology. And before the parties got too far along, they entered into a standard kind of non-disclosure agreement so that they could speak freely about their respective technologies and, and businesses. The agreement contained a fairly common forum selection clause. Um, and the clause stated that any legal action, suit, or proceeding, and this is kind of the, the key language, arising out of or relating to this agreement or the transactions contemplated hereby must be instituted exclusively in a court of competent jurisdiction in Manhattan, in New York. So that was the, the forum selection clause. And the parties talked for a bit more than a year, but basically failed to reach any agreement. Nothing came of it, at least initially. But about six years after the initial discussions, Canoe sued Samsung in district court in New York, uh, alleging patent infringement and breach of the NDA agreement. And Samsung responded, as many defendants now do, by filing several petitions for IPR for inter partes reviews at the patent office. In response to the petitions, Canoe actually argued at the board that the NDA's form selection clause barred Samsung from seeking IPRs, but the board didn't accept that argument. It denied several of the petitions kind of on the merits, saying Samsung had failed to show a likelihood of success, but it did grant two of the petitions. Um, and that then prompted Canoe to go back to the district court, and Canoe filed a motion for a preliminary injunction in the district court, seeking to compel Samsung to dismiss the IPRs. And the district court denied that, and that's when Canoe took the appeal. So it's sort of the rare case where you have an interlocutory appeal. So you, you have the right to immediate appeal from the denial of a preliminary injunction. Um, and so that's, that's where, how the case got to the federal circuit. Now, my natural tendency is to say, well, it's a preliminary injunction denial. District courts dump preliminary injunction motions all the time. They're, they're easy to dispose of. 
But this one procedurally has got a little bit more bite to it because if there's no preliminary injunction, the IPR runs its course before there's any permanent help and your patent may be invalid. So it seems that this really does matter procedurally for timing and the entire fight was the preliminary injunction. I think that's right. And I think, uh, in fact, even more so here, because I think the district court granted a stay of all proceedings in the district court while the IPR carries out. So without a preliminary injunction, the IPR will, you know, come to full completion before there could be any review later from the district court case. So, but, you know, the, the district court denied the injunction and, and the federal circuit on appeal affirmed, um, agreed with the district court. Well, the, the district court really focused on that, that language, which you, you referred to as kind of the key piece of it. And I think that's, as I read this case, I think that's what you got to focus on. This isn't a broad statement that said, oh, you can't contract away your rights to go to the, the PTAB. It's just saying that this NDA didn't have the right language to make that happen. Am I reading that right? Yeah, that, that's the way I, I read it too, Wayne, is I think the federal circuit in several spots, they talk about how common this type of business arrangement is and how common these types of agreements are. So I think the court was aware of the potential ramifications here that a decision in favor of the plaintiff could turn every NDA and every one of these types of agreements into a bar on review at the patent office. But even though the, the court seemed aware of that, I think they, the decision is written in a way to really focus on the specific language here and the specific facts. And, and so, you know, most of the decision really turned on, you know, you have the four factors for a PI preliminary injunction, but mostly the court focused on the likelihood of success and that turned on interpreting the contract. And there the court basically just concluded that the connection between the NDA which the court read as really focusing on preserving confidentiality of business information was too tenuous to the underlying intellectual property rights, the, the assertion of patent rights. And so the, the court, in fact, I think, distinguished the type of NDA agreement here from a patent license, saying, you know, a patent license there, the parties really certainly are contemplating intellectual property rights and a dispute about either infringement or validity of intellectual property rights when there's a patent license would certainly seem to arise out of, I think the court at least hinted, would, would arise out of or relate to a patent license agreement. But here the agreement was really about confidentiality, even though there was the potential for the party's discussions to lead to a patent license later down the road, because they never did lead to that patent license, that the connection between kind of the patent fight now and the, the confidentiality agreement was, there were too many steps in between for the court to conclude that the contract contemplated that this type of dispute had to be raised in New York. The court didn't, didn't appear to me to answer, I guess, the next question that somebody's going to ask in licensing negotiations. So before we get to a final license, but just in that negotiation period, can the parties contract away their right to go to the PTAB? If it's in clear, precise language, or is that going to be void as a policy matter? I think from this decision, it's going to depend on, on the, the language of any agreement that the parties come to and the, the facts there, you know, which is a, a very lawyer answer, I suppose. But, but you know, I, I don't think this decision here 
draws any kind of uniform or universal rule. And in fact, you know, there was in 2019, there was a non-presidential decision from the federal circuit. I think there, there was a, a patent license agreement. So the parties had gotten far enough along that there was a license agreement with a forum selection clause. And in that non-presidential decision, the court agreed that it was proper to grant a preliminary injunction against IPRs. One interesting question, which this case only sort of slightly touches on is, if you think you have these rights that might bar an IPR, where do you try to enforce them? Um, here, Canoe tried both at the patent office in response to the IPRs and in district court. Neither worked here. And there was, you know, about a month ago, in Ray Max Power case, the federal circuit denied a mandamus petition seeking to enforce a similar type of agreement. I think that in that case, it was an arbitration clause from the patent office. But here, at least from the district court, the plaintiff got full review by the federal circuit. Maybe this hints at the, the way to enforce these types of things may be better off trying to seek enforcement in the district court if, if you have the right language and the right facts. You raise an interesting point with the discretion that's been given to the PTAB panel to decide whether to institute or not institute, and with a new director eventually coming online, this may be a powerful tool within uh, the PTAB itself, or it may completely go away where the PTAB doesn't care. There'll be a lot to learn over the next probably 12, 18 months on how parties start contracting on this issue, because I think you're right when you said it's a, it's a hot issue people are beginning to go down this path. And this case may flag it even more before you, as a patent owner, start talking about licenses. You may need to, to find a little bit more clear wording for protection if you don't want people to run out and file against you. Yeah, I agree. It seems to be a somewhat a hot issue at the federal circuit in the sense of the court doesn't seem to be in total agreement. So this case had a dissent from Judge Newman and, and the In Re Max Power case from about a month ago had a partial dissent from Judge O'Malley. So the judges aren't completely uniform either on kind of their views of these issues. So Judge Newman would have granted the, the preliminary injunction here in the In Re Max Power. Judge O'Malley would have reviewed and, and I think enforced the arbitration clause. The second case you flagged, Acceleration Bay, is a wonderful example of the procedural requirements of the federal circuit and that you have to be very, very careful because if there's a procedural way out, the federal circuit's going to take it, um, most likely, as opposed to a district court, which may smooth the, the procedural processes to get to a result. The federal circuit's demanding. Uh, you want to walk us through here kind of what happened and what people should take away from Acceleration Bay? Yeah. So this is also a patent infringement case coming out of district court. Um, and in this case, Acceleration Bay was the plaintiff um, and they asserted four patents related to networking. And they asserted these patents against various companies based on online video games. So games like Grand Theft Auto and the NBA 2K franchise games. An interesting wrinkle, which maybe we'll talk about toward the end, is that the defendants made software, but most of the claims were directed to computer components like the, the network itself. And even when there were method claims, the method claims were interpreted basically to require computer components as well. The district court granted summary judgment against the patent owner for non-infringement to the defendants. And the trap for the unwary kind of point <laughs> that you were talking about is that the district court had alternative rationales. So it found for many of the claims that 
the patent owner had failed to show a specific claim limitation called the the M regular limitation, which was related to kind of the, the connections within the network. Um, but then it independently found that the patent owner failed to show that the defendants made or practiced the claims because the defendants just made software. And, and as I said before, most of the claim or all of the claims required at least some elements of hardware. Um, and so because the defendants only made the software and the hardware came from someone else, the patent owner had failed to show infringement by the defendants themselves. The cautionary tale from this is, as you set things up is that, in, in, in fact, the federal circuit felt compelled to dismiss part of the appeal. So it actually dismissed rather than even issuing a decision on the merits for part of the appeal because it said the, the appeal was moot. Um, and the reason was because of those alternative grounds. So the appeal by the, the patent owner had only challenged one of the district court's alternative grounds. And so the court reasoned that, well, be because even if they were to agree with the patent owner on that ground, they couldn't actually grant any relief because the judgment would still stand with the judgment was just non-infringement. It didn't matter which of the alternative grounds. And so that made the appeal, or at least that part of the appeal moot. The one interesting part on the court's rationale on that was the patent owner argued that, well, you should still address the issue because it's going to be relevant to the attorney fees motion that is sure to come after the appeal is over um, and you know, argued that a decision reversing the district court on the, the issue that the patent owner challenged would at least help to show that the case is non-exceptional and defeat an attorney fees motion. And the federal circuit said, well, at this point, there isn't a motion. And what you're asking for is basically an advisory opinion on something that might come up later. And if there's an attorney fees motion and, and it comes out against the patent owner, the patent owner could appeal then. But at this stage, you know, that potential future effect wasn't enough to give it jurisdiction. I think that's the, the first week of a constitutional law that the court's not going to pick up things that it doesn't need to. And I can see why the, a burdened federal circuit would go down that particular path. The vast majority of times, district courts don't give multiple rationales. They find one reason to terminate a claim and they're done. So I can see how somebody might overlook this. But is it often or occasionally the case where it's hard to figure out that there are multiple rationales buried in a district court opinion? I think it, it can happen, you know, it's not uncommon. And I think it, it, it shows maybe the value of having somebody fresh take a look at, at, at your case at some point if you're going on appeal. Oftentimes, parties who have lived with the case for five years, they see things within a certain context because, you know, they, they know all this background and history. Um, and, and sometimes just getting a fresh pair of eyeballs to review the decision and, and check and see, are there any anything that could be considered an alternative rationale, I think can go a long way to heading off this, this type of problem. But it, it, you know, it's an important thing to just triple check multiple times to, to make sure that there's nothing that could be considered an alternative rationale for, for exactly this reason. Your appeal could get dismissed or, or the court can just affirm an, on an alternative ground um, without ever addressing you know, the issue that you care about. So. Well, I got to tell you, it's probably a, probably a bad day when you're drafting that, that reply brief that says, well, we know we lose, but can you help us out on the, the attorney's fee motion that's going to be coming in the lower court? Uh, that's, that's not a place any lawyer wants to be. So I, I feel for them. 
same and, and getting up at oral argument in, in a case like that is tough too. Well, Seth, thank you for, for pointing out these two cases. And uh, my bet is we're going to hear more about the, the topics in both of them over the next six, 12 months. We'll have a chance to catch up in the future. Great. Thanks for having me, Wayne.